year, Polygamy listeners. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider leaving a donation at yearofpolygamy.com to help keep the podcast going strong. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we have a really exciting guest, someone who I don't have many people who have had experience with the AUB who are still uh, believing members, and so I'm excited to bring on someone who has a very unique story, which, I mean, it's unique to people listening who have no interactions with fundamentalism, but I would say in the fundamentalist sense, it's actually quite a common story. At least in a lot of in a lot of ways, I think it's fascinating, and people are going to be excited to hear this. So, uh, Moroni Jessup, can you say hello? Hi. So, Moroni, you have a very very interesting story, and you've been blogging about this for a few years. Do you want to tell us briefly a little bit about yourself right now? Sure. Well, I've always said to kind of tell everything that you want to know about me just based on my name. My name is Moroni Lopez Jessup. And uh, Moroni, I obviously come from Mormon roots. Lopez, I also come from Latino roots. And Jessup, I uh, have a fundamentalist background. My uh, family was part of the fundamentalist movement that separated from the church and started circa the 1920s. And yet, even though I have that background, I myself was raised in the LDS church. Yeah, so that's kind of where I want to start because, like I said, on this podcast, we've covered lots of things. And uh, one of my good friends was actually sort of groomed by her bishop to be a plural wife eventually. And she went down your same path, but ended up in a completely different way. She's now out of the church. She doesn't believe in God. And and yours is opposite. You ended up uh, embracing fundamentalism and sort of living the lifestyle. And right now you are living in a, you're still living in a communal sense, right? That's your generator in the background we hear. And you're not living the United Order, but you were for a time, correct? I did. I, I lived in a family United Order situation for 14 years, although I'm, I'm no longer in a United Order. But uh, I still live kind of on the family ranch. I live off grid. I live about five miles down a dirt road. Today, we're actually snowed in. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to drive so you could get some service and talk to us. Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start when you were a kid. Let's talk about, first of all, your last name is interesting. Anyone that follows fundamentalism will know that Jessup is sort of a fundamentalist royalty name. So you come from fundamentalist roots, even though you were raised in the LDS church. Do you want to explain about your father and about your grandfather to us and how you sort of depart from the Jessups that become fundamentalists and you become LDS? Yeah, sure. Jessup is, you know, very common. It's kind of like Yoder in the Amish community. Jessup, my great-grandfather was my namesake. His name was Moroni Jessup. And he grew up in uh, Millville, Utah, which is was kind of like, you know, the hotbed for what later became the fundamentalist movement. A lot, of the, a lot of the people who were involved in the early fundamentalist movement came from Millville, which is just right outside of Logan. The Jensen family, the Barlow family, the, the Jessa family, these are names that are very common in fundamentalism. And my uh, great-grandfather... He was an old cowboy named uh, Moroni Jessup, became intimately involved with uh, John Woolley and Lauren Woolley, who were the founders of the fundamentalist movement back in the 1920s. And uh, he 
actually lived on the Woolly Ranch over there in Centerville, Utah for a while as one of their ranch hands. But so he was very intimately involved in the in the uh, in the organization. He never himself lived plural marriage, but he was he was very actively involved in the community. And his son, Jack Jessup, which is my grandfather, wound up leaving the fundamentalist uh, community because he married a girl that was in the LDS church. And so for her sake, he went back to the church. And my father grew up in Los Angeles, attending the LDS church there. His father instructed him in a lot of the different fundamentalist beliefs. That, uh, at the time, he didn't know they were fundamentalist beliefs, but uh, he was instructed in a lot of them. And then something happened when my dad was 14 years old. His father passed away of a heart attack. So it was just my father was essentially an only child. He had a he had a sister that had moved out of the house, grown up and moved out of the house. So he was essentially an only child. And my grandmother was so opposed to plural marriage or anything to do with the fundamentalist movement that they were not allowed to speak at all about his fundamentalist relatives. He knew he had polygamous relatives in Utah. And he was kind of led to believe that they were lecherous and dirty old men. And so, you know, he didn't really know anything about them. And uh, then he uh, went on a mission, uh, mission for the LDS Church in Mexico. And when he returned, like a lot of return missionaries do, he uh, decided to attend uh, BYU. And it was there while he was in Utah that he came into contact with a lot of his fundamentalist relatives, particularly an uncle of his, who was a, a brother of his father, a man by the name of Jim Jessup, who had two wives. And and uh, my father learned right away that, that the polygamists weren't the dirty old men that he had been led to believe. My father tells a story that he even, in passing, decided to tell my uncle Jim a dirty joke just to see how he would react. And he said that when he reached the punchline that he looked over at my Uncle Jim and my Uncle Jim didn't laugh or anything, just kind of gave my dad this look, you know, like, why are you telling this story? So uh, he got into several debates with some of his, his uh, polygamous relatives, and he decided to go to the to the uh, special section of the BYU library where a lot of out-of-print books were, were kept, you know, books like Women of Mormondom. You know, you can... You can find copies of Women of Mormondom now, but previous to that, those were kind of hard to find. And the only way that you could read books like that at the BYU library was if you arranged for a professor to sit across from you on his own time while you read the books. And you couldn't make notations. You couldn't do anything of the sort. Well, my father, through studying this, came to become convinced of the truthfulness of uh, Mormon fundamentalism, I guess you could say. And... Uh, he uh, made a very avid research and study of, out of this. And uh, this is around the time that I was just a little baby. But uh, my mom became very concerned with the direction that uh, my dad was taking. And so uh, she um, sent a letter to the church president at the time, which was Harold B. Lee. At that time, the Mormon apostle that was in charge of handling fundamentalist cases was Marky e. Peterson. So an appointment was made. My parents, my mother, and my father went to go see Marky e. Peterson. Marky, e. my father assumed that Marky e. Peterson would say, "Yes, Brother Jessup, these things were taught in the early days, but we don't teach those now. You know, we would appreciate it if you would just, you know, keep quiet about these things." And my dad said that if Marky e. Peterson had treated him that way. He would have been perfectly happy to remain in the church for the rest of his days. But instead, 
Marky Peterson threatened my father with excommunication and chewed him out and uh, berated him for his studies. And and uh, not only that, but he was lied to by Marky Peterson over certain doctrines that my dad had studied and knew that early church leaders taught them. Marky Peterson was saying that they were false and had never been taught. You know, like, for instance, the Adam God doctrine. Marky Peterson was saying that, in essence, Brigham Young had been misquoted. And my dad knew that that was false. And so he left with the feeling of chagrin. In spite of that, he, he continued going to church. The way I remember it as a kid is that my dad would always have his elders corn president, or later, later when he was a member of the, the uh, 70s, the 70s corn president would come over and they would go into my dad's room. And my dad would get chewed out for something or the other that he had said in priesthood meeting. And I just remember my dad, you know, always getting in trouble. And uh, at some point, you know, sometimes my dad's attendance would drop off. My dad would make us go to church and I would say, why? You don't go to church. And he'd say, son, I tell you what, once you put in as much study as I have, then you can make a decision whether or not to go to church. But for now, you're going to church. So... So I just want to stop you for just a minute, because when I talk about how this is something that I say is fairly common, I think that this is more common than people realize. And I want to remind the listeners that if we look at the history of how the manifesto sort of play out, the way that I grew up, I I sort of, polygamy was this, this frontier thing that happened a long time ago, and it was over, and it was done with. The reality is, and logically, if you think about it, you start putting these policies in place and there's still families affected by it. And your family's a perfect example. So you have your family who was literally split up by this doctrine and they're trying to figure it out and trying to figure out their identity and trying to figure out what really happened and what the truth is. What are families supposed to do? I mean, some LDS faithful people would look at your dad as being pulled away into this sort of crazy, strange doctrine. But the reality is, He's just trying to understand his own father. He's trying to get in touch with what really happened. And when he starts to see a different version of the LDS church leaders that that sort of back up what he's been told, that maybe the LDS church has been hiding it, maybe they have had a bad attitude about it, it really sort of reinforces this idea. And here you are, you know, if you're a man in this position, what do you do? What what choices do you make? And th- like I said, this is a very common Mormon story. It's more common than we realize. Exactly. It was, it was common. And, um, my dad was concerned about the state of his family. He knew a couple of other families that were living there in Utah in some of the same communities we were living who had been excommunicated. There was one man that his whole family got excommunicated. And uh, my dad was concerned because he watched this family kind of dwindle into unbelief. They, you know, they weren't Mormon anymore. They didn't study. My dad didn't really know that there were other options out there. In fact, um, you know, my uncle Jim, what it was, what was termed as an independent, but, uh, the only other fundamentalists that we knew were those inside of the FLDS community. My dad had uncles there, his uncle Virgil, his uncle Fred, some of the old timers, some of the old leaders of the FLDS movement. And my dad worked between Utah and Arizona. My mother was from Arizona. My father was from Utah, and so uh, on the way, we'd always stop by, you know, what was called then Short Creek or Hilldale or Colorado City, and, you know, it was uh, kind of a strange thing, you know, uh, in the 1970s, I was a little kid, and my dad would pull up into this area, and he'd ask us all to be on our, he'd almost plead for us to be on our best behavior, he'd have us roll down our sleeves and button up our shirts, and 
kind of straighten our hair. Uh, in the 1970s, all the kids kind of had longer hair, and I think my dad was embarrassed by that because, you know, long hair on a boy was kind of frowned down on. And so, you know, we would go see his Uncle Virgil, and we would see all these people, you know, dressed in prairie dresses, and, you know, and it seemed seemed really strange to me. But the, my dad relied on their knowledge, and there was one particular incident for me that kind of started me out on this path is that uh, on one particular evening, we got there late. And so my uncle Virgil's wives threw out blankets on the floor for all of us kids to sleep on. I was only six years old at the time. And I woke up at six in the morning, uh, or excuse me, at midnight. And the alarm clock, uh, the uh, grandfather clock was striking midnight. And uh, I remember that there was like a very special feeling that came over me. And I knew that something special was being lived in that house. And don't ask me why, but at six years old, for some reason, I knew that I would someday live the same thing that my uncle Virgil was living. As kids, we used to play with the other kids there. You know, I, I must have seemed strange to them, but they kind of seemed strange to me, too. You know, I remember one kid that he was bragging that he had been to Fredonia before. And if anybody's been to that area, Fredonia is maybe about 15 miles away, you know. And to me, it seemed uh, it seemed a little backwards that that was as far as you'd ever traveled, you know. So, okay, so he was excited to say that he had been somewhere as far away as Fredonia. Exactly. Okay. So how did, uh, so you're still LDS. When you go down on these trips, what is your mom experiencing? Well, you know, uh, my mother didn't really say much about it in front of us kids, but something happened when my dad attended a funeral of Kay Jeffs, who was one of uh, Rule and Jeff's wives. He read a patriarchal blessing that was that was hung on the wall in a frame. It was uh, the patriarchal blessing of John Woolley. And uh, he had some sort of spiritual experience that night where he felt that he needed to go forward, continue to teach this to his family, but not only teach it, but to live it. You know, for 20 years, my dad kind of stayed in the church and shut up. And he kind of felt that he needed to take active steps. And so he started teaching us more. And uh, at this point, my dad actually started trying to enter into plural marriage. And, you know... He, he knew a woman from work, and he kind of started trying to court her. And uh, for me, you know, I was a teenager at the time. All I could see at the time was the turmoil that my mother went through. It was very difficult for her as a woman to see, you know, her husband, whom she had been married for almost three decades, uh, start to try to court another woman. And, and for me, it was hard. I took my mother's side. I didn't like seeing what it was doing to my mother. It wasn't until later my mother had a spiritual experience where she had a dream where one of her deceased brothers came and spoke to her. In the dream, he told her, he said, you know, if I had had a chance to live this in life, I would have. And from then on, my mother's attitude changed. She, she embraced it fully after that. My, my father was teaching us all. We were attending LDS meetings still, but usually like in the morning before we went to our LDS meetings, we had a little meeting at home. And my father kind of made a rule, you know, that we could either attend the LDS church or we could attend the, the cottage meetings that he was having in his own living room. But we had to attend, we had to attend one or the other. 
that's kind of the way it went. So let's All- let's pause and, and give some context for the listeners too. So at this time, when you're talking about Rule and Jeffs and things like that, there aren't all the groups that we know of today, like FLDS and Centennial Park. This is still early on with when the Mormon fundamentalist movement was still gathered, sort of being run by the Council of Friends, correct? Yes and no. We weren't aware of the AUB at that time, even though they, they were in existence. Uh, at the point that this story is uh, taking place, it's uh, it's like mid to late 1980s. So okay, so Park, so we would have had we would have had the AUB. They would have been down in Mexico and and in Murray and things like that. Yes, but we weren't we weren't aware of Centennial Park at this point. I think had just barely broken off from the FLDS, and so we weren't weren't really aware of them either. We got in trouble with the church. My my dad used to say that. He was eventually blessed with a bishop who wouldn't turn a blind eye to his beliefs, and that's exactly what happened. We kind of got zapped from three different sources at the same time. Uh, at the time, me and my brothers, who were teenagers, had a friend there in the high school who uh, was taking missionary lessons. She inquired about plural marriage from the missionaries and got one answer, and then she inquired us about plural marriage, and she got a different answer from them. Then at this, uh, at the same time, my mother's, uh, had confided in one of her siblings. Then she had a, she had another sibling who was a bishop at that time who wound up reporting us. And then at the same time, one of my sisters went to a young women's activity, a sleepover, and she accidentally left her journal there where she was documenting some of the things that my dad was teaching us. So we kind of got hit from three sides. Wait, so they read her journal at a sleepover? Uh, yeah, they read her journal. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the result of this was that uh, my dad got called into the state president's office. He, uh, it took some time for them to, to, to deliberate and to decide what to do. But uh, eventually, there was a very prominent member uh, in our ward who had just returned from being stake uh, or, or a mission president. And he was appalled when he came back from uh, his mission to find that there were quasi-fundamentalists in his ward. And so he went to Salt Lake with it, and Salt Lake sent news back to excommunicate the whole family. Uh, My mother, my father, all of the children, right down to my 13-year-old sister, got excommunicated. So I want to talk about this. That seems out of policy. So talk to me why the entire family. You know, that's... That's baffling. I've had people since who have told me that I should have challenged that, but by then it was kind of too late because I was practicing plural marriage. What did did that do to you? What did that feel like as a kid? Well, you know, here we had spent our whole lives in this institution. Suddenly we were on the outs, you know. Me personally, I got called in and I got asked two questions. Number one, do you believe that plural marriage uh, should be practiced and lived in this day and age? which, of course, my answer was yes. And uh, do you believe that Ezra Taft Benson is the only man on the earth who holds the keys? And and I said, no, because, of course, I had come to a different understanding. Uh, I had requested, I was at a missionary, I was at an age where I was going to be called on a mission. And uh, I had asked if I could, in spite of everything, still go on my mission, and I wouldn't teach anybody what I believed, but, of course, the answer on that was no. I moved away. Uh, at the time, we were living in Arizona. I uh, moved away to Utah 
my dad kind of orchestrated it. He wanted me to be close to some of my fundamentalist relatives. And once I got there and I got enrolled in college, I uh, received both the invitation and the results of my trial, which was, of course, excommunication. At first, I was bitter, you know, uh, and I, you know, I'm not going to lie. It, it kind of uh, took me a few years to get over that. I was really bitter against the LDS Church, not not only for just lying to me, but for just casting me aside. But you know, after a few years, you know, uh, I'm 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 pretty zen about it now. You know, I uh, I think that it was something that happened for my growth, and I really appreciate that opportunity. You know, if that makes sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Do you? Do you say that because it helped bring you closer to what you believe are the true principles of the gospel? Or do you think that it was a, do you think it's an inspired act by the LDS Church? I don't necessarily think it was an inspired act by the LDS Church. But uh, what it did was it, it opened up an avenue for me to have many, many other opportunities. When I was associating in Utah with some of these fundamentalists, most of whom were independents, you know, I got kind of discouraged uh, for a while because I remember that a lot of them get married pretty young. You know, there was, uh, you know, I'm 19, 20. There's nobody my age, you know. I remember that I went up to the avenues uh, with some friends and I wound up at a party that kind of turned out a little bit wild. You know, and uh, I kind of got disgusted with myself because I had moved to Utah to improve myself. And so I left this party in the avenues and at three in the morning, I'm walking through through downtown Salt Lake and I walked right by the temple. I'm, I'm walking to where I parked my car, which was like, you know, I parked it like at, uh, you know, fourth south and, you know, and uh, West Temple or something. You know, I walked by the temple and I remember that it was all lit up and it was dark and there was nobody on the streets but me. And I felt envious of, you know, the things that go on inside of the temple, the endowment. You know, where was I ever going to receive an endowment? Where was I ever going to find somebody who wanted to marry me? Where was I ever going to be sealed? And uh, I uh, remember that I was walking. I heard a voice in my head say, you're going to be married within a year. And I kind of laughed at it and I said, with who? Who am I going to marry? But, you know, within a year, I had been endowed in the AUB, and uh, I had met my first wife, Martha. We were married, and it happened within a year of that that whole experience. So Incredible. So walk us through that. How do you, you know, become an XL of the LDS and get acquainted with the AUB? Well, um, we moved in. Uh, I moved up to Utah along with a younger brother to start to get to know the fundamentalists. My parents stayed in Arizona. And they were preparing to move up to Salt Lake, too. We were associating with some independents. And, you know, a lot of those independents I still talk to. I love them to death. But there were a few of them that kind of uh, um, that kind of had me experience something that I never had before, um, which was uh, racism. You know, me being half Latino, my mother being from Mexico, I... Uh, came across some of them that were pretty prejudiced against uh, against any other race, I guess you might say. And, you know, because, I mean, I'm forced to admit that uh, fundamentalism is fairly, you know, it's fairly homogenous when it comes to its racial makeup. It's usually mostly white people that, that get involved with it. And uh, when I got up to, I had never experienced racism before until I moved to, until I moved to Utah. And then I felt it for the first time that I was different from other people. I remember uh, talking to my mother, you know, and I said, you're not going to like it up here in Utah. And she said, why? And I said, they don't like Mexicans. 
anyway, uh, my brother got a job with a company that was involved with, had a lot of fundamentalists employed there, you know, from independence to FLDS. And he met a lady there from the AUB and, uh, he was telling this lady from the AUB how lonely his parents felt down, uh, in the Phoenix area, uh, which is where we lived. We lived in a, in a smaller town called, uh, Casa Grande right outside of Phoenix. This, this lady just kind of chuckled and she said, alone in, in Arizona, you guys aren't alone in Arizona. And so she put my brother into contact with uh, a congregation of the AUB that uh, is down in the Phoenix area. Now, uh, the congregation down in the AUB is pretty much mostly Spanish-speaking down in the Phoenix area. There are a lot of people from the AUB colony in Osumba that come up to the United States for work. And so the meetings were predominantly in Spanish. And so since uh, we were Spanish-speaking around the home, my parents fit in. They called us up, and they were all excited about the AUB. And, you know, uh, the only thing we had heard about the AUB, you know, the, uh, the younger kids, you know, you know, the kids, we had mainly heard from the independents a lot of negative things about the AUB, so we weren't too excited about it. I went with my parents to attend an AUB meeting. Uh, when I went, I was really impressed. I, you know, uh, I was impressed with what I, I thought, and so I made it a matter of prayer. My parents asked all of us to fast and pray about it, and I, uh, I got my answer to join the AUB at that time. And the answer that I got, personally, was that uh, out of all the groups out there, that the AUB was the most correct, but that they weren't perfect, that they still had, uh, they still had issues, but that I should go ahead and join. And so, so I did. We joined. So, so and, wait, uh, wait. Can I ask you a question about that? So, at this point, yeah. you've already sort of developed this idea that leaders can be—they're not infallible. Um, you've sort of come to terms with this because you've had experience with the LDS Church. So, explain this because this is very—this is a foreign idea to a lot of people who have grown up only in the LDS Church or maybe only in the FLDS Church, where we're taught that you know our leaders are nearly godlike. So, can you? Can you talk to us about that idea a little bit of how you can accept something while knowing that there's some problems? Well, yeah. I mean, we had been taught that our leaders uh, were infallible in the LDS church and that, you know, uh, a lot of things had been been said, like, that when the brethren speak, the thinking has been done. You know, in other words, don't question it. And the whole basis for fundamentalism was that... that uh, they separated themselves from the main body of the church because they weren't in agreement with the way the leadership was handling things. But, but of course, you know, uh, being in fundamentalism, you know, you'll find a wide variety of thoughts. And uh, honestly, you know, it gets to the point where even the fundamentalist leaders acquire that infallibility. You know, uh, I mean, Warren Jeffs is the perfect example of that. And to, to a lesser degree, I mean, even the AUB is like that. The, the, the council is held inviolate in their in their uh, decision making, and uh, a lot of times they can't be questioned either, which eventually led to my separation from the AUB in and of itself. So, thank you. Yeah, let's talk about how you join the AUB first. Sure. Well, uh, like, where do you want me to start exactly? Do we want to talk about your teenage youth in the punk rock scene at all? Yeah. Just because yeah. I think that's fascinating. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, I uh, I was very involved in the punk rock, goth, rave. You know, anything anything that was counterculture. 
I embraced. And, uh, you know, there was a time when I got into the AUB that I tried to rewrite myself and tried to get rid of that. But, uh, you know, I think that the older I, I, the older that I've got, I've realized that that is a part of me and that, uh, in a lot of ways that kind of influenced who I am. But though my well, dad, that's what I was going to ask though. Do you think that that comes from being at a young age on the fringes of the fundamentalists and then on the fringes of the LDS church and then eventually kicked out of the LDS church. And do you think that that is why you were able to embrace fundamentalism because it is counterculture? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that played a huge part of my development, but that was, my dad tricked me. That was one of the things that he did that uh, I was very involved in the rave scene when I was in Arizona. In fact, a friend of uh, mine and me were planning on opening up a club. So I had a choice. I had a choice between moving to Utah and getting involved in fundamentalism or opening a club. And uh, we obviously, we know which choice I made, which was to embrace fundamentalism. Yeah, it's it's counterculture. And uh, I'm still, I'm still in, uh, in a lot of ways like that. Yeah, okay. So I just wanted to throw that out because I think that's kind of a fun little aside about you. Um, just because it breaks a stereotype of, you know, all fundamentalists are wearing, you know, button-up flannel shirts, <laughs> plaid flannel well, shirts I, all the time. In fact, I got to plug my blog on that. I still do music reviews, and uh, it's called Moroni's Music. All you need to do is Google that. And uh, I do all kinds of music reviews. I, I call it kind of tongue-in-cheek, a Mormon polygamous guide to music. And then I do all this, like, indie, underground, you know, music reviews on there. <laughs> Well, if we get time, we should talk about music and fundamentalism. But let's, uh, you have, you have such a fascinating story. Let's, let's try to get through that. So you decide to join the AUB and you know they're not perfect, but set up, explain to outsiders a little bit where the AUB is at this point. Who is running it? What the core principles are and what attracts you to it? Okay. Uh, at the the time that I joined, um, uh, Owen Allred, who was the brother of Ruin Allred, um, was uh, the leader. When I joined, they principally met in Bluffdale at the RCA building, yet they had colonies that were extended as far as Mexico, even into Canada and Montana. When we came into the AUB, it was kind of weird. It was like a honeymoon. A lot of people aren't accepted as readily as we were, but uh, being descended from Moroni Jessup, a lot of the old-timers like Owen Allred knew and remembered my great-grandfather, so it was kind of like a homecoming, you know. You know, people are not usually as readily accepted as we were. My parents... And uh, and can we just point this out, too? The AUB had a large presence in Mexico, so your being, I guess they would have seen it half Lamanite, wasn't so much of an issue. No, no. In fact, uh, there were a lot of people that we knew that were Mexican, or even, like me, half Mexican. You know, there was a lot of intermarriage between the people down in the colony in Mexico uh, with the people up in Utah. And so so it wasn't as much of an issue. It felt more like home to us than any experience we had previously had. But uh, my parents were taken in. They were endowed. They traveled down to Mexico with the council. They interacted with the people down in Mexico. And, uh, and it was basically a honeymoon period. Now, Moroni, are you comfortable talking about the temple in the AUB, or is that something you'd rather not talk about? Uh, you know what? I'm... I'm pretty much open to talking just about anything when it comes to the temple. And that's one of the things that people have criticized me is that 
that I'm very, very open about a lot of that stuff. So, do you mind? Do you mind explaining it to us here? Um, I just want to sort of compare the the sealing ceremonies. It, it was pretty striking to me when I heard Brielle Decker, who was the former wife of Warren Jeffs, explain her sealing ceremony, and it was basically word for word the exact words I said in the sealing ceremony. You know, to my husband in the LDS temple. Yes, it's very similar. In fact, a lot of research went into establishing the endowment. They, uh, they essentially took the, 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 the original St. George ceremony that was introduced in the 1870s, and that's what they based their endowment on. You know, it's, it's very much pretty close to the original that the pioneers used in the temple at that time. Now, were you endowed with a garment? I was. Uh, I wear the long garment. Okay, again, another another part that sort of stayed with fundamentalism, the LDS Church sort of alters their garments over time. Yes. Does no, the temple look similar, do you know, to LDS temples on the inside? Well, I know in uh, in Bluffdale, they have it down in Hamels and not necessarily. Um, down in Mexico, they constructed an actual temple. And dimensions are are smaller. It's it's more like a micro temple, I guess you could say, because it's a small building, and yet on the outside and on the inside, it looks a lot like an LDS temple. And do they do baptisms for the dead there? Baptisms for the dead, everything that you would find within a temple. Okay, perfect. Um, so let's move on. So your parents get get their endowment out. What happens next? You guys all go through, you're at an age where you can get your endowment now. Yeah, that's, this is around the time that I met my wife, Martha. So let's talk about that. Okay. Well, first of all, my very first meeting to the AUB, me being a 20-year-old guy, <laughs> I walk in and I'm scoping out the girls, okay? And I mentally ticked off who I thought were the prettiest. And, and, and the one that I thought was the prettiest was a... Uh, girl who was of half Japanese descent. And little did I know that she eventually would wind up uh, becoming my wife. We became friends uh, over the course of the next six months. We wound up dating for about two months, or, or in their vernacular, they call it courting. And then uh, we were engaged for two months and then uh, married very shortly after that. And this would have been in the late 80s you were courting? Uh, uh, we got married in 1992. Okay, so explain courting. I think that there are some misconceptions because of Warren Jeffs with fundamentalism. Explain what your courting experience is like generally. Okay, well, the way that I I did it, first of all, um, in the AUB, you have to go talk to the priesthood head first, which in this case would be Owen Allred. I went and I talked to Owen Allred, and, you know, he can nix it right there. You know, he can say, no, I don't want you dating her, you know. But uh, I was fortunate that I was on pretty good terms with Owen Allred. And so the next step after that is I have to go talk to the dad. And so uh, I went to go talk to Martha's dad uh, after sacrament meeting one day at the RCA building. And I think that he kind of knew what I wanted. You know, I said, can I talk to you in private? And he was involved in the conversation with somebody else. And he made me stand there for, you know, a long time while he finished the conversation that he was engaged in. And then when I... uh, talked to him. He said, well, you know, he says a lot of men have asked about Martha. And, and you know, with reason, Martha was uh, was and still is a very beautiful woman. He said, uh, so in essence, what he was saying was better luck next time. I'll talk to her, but better luck next time. And so 
the reason that they developed this whole procedure is uh, supposedly to, you know, insulate the girl from unwanted advances. You know, that, that's what they say anyway. Anyway, he went to go talk to Martha. Martha, you know, I, I thought that she was was uh, in the bag, so to speak. You know, I thought that I thought I was a shoe in because she had baked me cookies. She was always talking to me, you know, and I thought, yeah, hey, this girl likes me. <laughs> but when I talked to her, she said, I'm not really interested in you that way. I just want to be friends. And I was like, oh, but from that time forward, she started spending all her time with me, you know. And a few weeks later, I said, you know, I thought that you didn't want a date or want a court. And yet we're here we are. We're spending all of our time together. And and uh, she said, uh, well, at that point, you know, she says, I'm ready to I'm ready to take the next step, you know. And so then you have to start the procedure all over. You have to talk to the dad, to the parents. You have to talk to the priesthood leader. You have to schedule uh, an endowment and sealing date, which we did. Then we had our endowment, our, the first time for both of us. And then we had uh, a wedding reception because plural families are so huge. Over 300 people showed up to our wedding reception. So, and anyway, that's how, that's how our married life started out. It sounds very similar to the LDS courting experience. So, um, yeah, my experience is very similar. We had to get, you know, the approval of priesthood leaders and... And he had to ask my dad. And and while that wasn't necessarily church policy, it was very much cultural, culturally accepted. So, okay, so you're living now, you know, you're living as a married man. Um, Tell us what going to church is like. Well, uh, we uh, we start our most of our service, just like in in uh, in the LDS church, uh, started out on uh, Sundays. Uh, I went first thing in the morning at six in the morning on Sunday, I went to the RCA building in Bluffdale where we attended elders corn meeting. Then, um, generally, uh, generally, um, Sunday schools were held in individual people's homes. I mean, uh, they did have like a youth Sunday school, uh, but, uh, at the RCA building, but basically once you were married, you didn't attend that anymore. And then in the afternoon we went to, uh, a sacrament meeting, which is very similar to an LDS sacrament meeting, except for uh, one of the first things I notice is when they pass sacraments, rather than passing out passing it out in little cups, they serve everyone drinks from a common cup, you know, and which is very kind of hard to get used to, especially if you're kind of, you know, a germaphobe. <laughs> yeah, that would be very difficult to me to see little kids, you know, drinking, yeah. but I can yeah. appreciate the symbolism. But you're supposed to have faith. You're not going to sin. <laughs> Did the AUB have like a, a higher rate of catching the cold than normal people? That's that's hard to say. I'm not sure. If, I know that at one point that uh, there was uh, an AIDS scare. You know, as if you could catch AIDS from a cop. But uh, for a while when I was in the AUB, they... Uh, they told people to go home and do the sacrament themselves in their own home. And people just met for a meeting and then dispersed without taking the sacrament and just took the sacrament at their own home. Well, can you talk, one of, one of my fascinations with the AUB is how integrated it is with LDS culture and sort of material. So can you talk about how similar it is, how many of the AUB get their materials from the LDS church distribution center and you hang a lot of the same paintings and artwork in your houses? Things like that. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, they pilfer Deseret Industries for hymn books, all the accoutrements that belong to the LDS Church. You know, it, it's almost similar to the LDS Church in every way except that plural marriage is practiced. And, in you know, and in some areas they practiced United Order as well. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and I want you to talk about your experience with United Order. Um, so you travel around a lot for work. You're kind of all over the place. I want to talk about your mission for the church. Can you? Are you comfortable talking about that for a minute? Yeah. Explain how an AUB mission, a fundamentalist mission, is different than an LDS mission. Well, the uh, the uh, first of all, the AUB really doesn't have missionaries in the same way that the church does. They have uh, 70s, and the 70s, their responsibility is to to teach the gospel. But, um, you know, there uh, there was a sense in the, in the AUB that the church was supposed to do most of the missionary work. This church was supposed to send the Book of Mormon out to all the world. And so, you know, if you really want to get down to it, the AUB 70s, their principal purpose was to screen out undesirables. So they, uh, they didn't have missionaries in the traditional sense. In Mexico... So, were, so just to reiterate, what you're saying is the LDS Church's job is to sort of do the groundwork for everybody, but the AUB is sort of living a higher loss. The people you let in are maybe, you know, the people that can hack it, and the LDS Church kind of keeps the lower form of Mormons. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, uh, now my dad had a different, uh, you know, he, he had been an avid missionary all of his life. My dad had a different uh, different view of missionary work, and once we separated ourselves from the AUB, then uh, we kind of had a different approach to missionary work. And I, I don't know if you want to talk me to talk about that yet, or no, wait, wait on that till we get to that part of the story. So, so in essence, you know, uh, my dad did do some missionary work with the AUB. There was a couple of council members that you know, would call up my dad, and they would say, "Do you know anybody we can go teach? Let's go teach." And so my dad would think of somebody and they'd go teach somebody but but uh, that was kind of the exception more than the rule the the feeling amongst most fundamentalists in any group is that um, you're embracing the higher doctrines and so as a result it's really up to you to go seek it out rather than for say a missionary to knock on your door okay so talk to me about you served a mission in kentucky no, I, I never served a mission. I got excommunicated before I could... Uh, I thought uh, I read on your blog that for your church, you went on a mission on the East well, Coast. I, I have, uh, I have um, in my, uh, to fulfill my priesthood calling now, but uh, uh, that was after my separation from the AUB. That, that, okay. That's been like the last 10 years. Sorry, I'm getting my timeline, timeline off. Okay, so you're living happily with your wife and do you want to do you want to sort of talk about some of the dynamics going on in the conflicts in the AUB? I know you don't want to get into this a lot because you're you don't want to be seen as a spokesperson for the church, but we've covered it a little bit on the podcast, but maybe talk about both sides. I'm not going to expect you to take a side on this. Just kind of talk about the general conflict that was going on. Are you referring to um the whole issue with uh, Joe Thompson? Yeah, is that, should we wait and talk about your plural marriage first? No, that, that, that happened after, after, you know, that happened after I was removed from the AU. 
Yeah, so let's talk, just give us a brief overview of the conflict in, in the AUB. Okay. When I joined the AUB, you know, I noticed that things were a certain way, and then it seemed to start shifting, I can explain it, uh, while I was there. For instance, um, if you wanted to baptize your son, you had the right to go baptize your son. While I was there, it shifted. All of a sudden, you had to go through a committee in order to get permission, and I, I started noticing little changes like that. And I, I remember my wife grew up in the AUB, and so I asked her, you know, is it me or or are things changing? And at this point, um, and uh, there was a, a man on the council by the name of Joseph Thompson. He was uh, one of the original council members called by Joseph Musser. He had uh, some accusations uh, brought out against him of, uh, of uh, child sexual abuse. I don't really want to get into whether he did it or not. Okay, obviously, I personally, because I knew him, didn't believe that he was guilty of it. Uh, he was the one that did ordain me to the priesthood when I joined the AUB. You know, and there's a lot of people who believe that he did. There's a lot of his children out there who have made accusations against him. And I don't really want to discuss the merit of truthfulness or uh, versus, uh, you know, falsehood in these accusations. But I do want to point out that... Uh, that uh, Joe was not afforded uh, the opportunity to defend himself, nor was he offered an opportunity to have some kind of ecclesiastical trial. Now, Owen Allred himself told me that uh, these accusations were taken to the police, and the police came back and said that there really wasn't anything to prosecute in these. These, these accusations had supposedly taken place 30 years earlier, and so uh, the police had asked Owen to handle it inside to do an ecclesiastical type of type of you know I don't know, handling the situation. So explain to outsiders though why this would matter. Um, why would this be such a big deal? Well, uh, Joe, uh, in essence, was one of the primary leaders of the AUB, and uh, what happened uh, was that uh, we went to a sacrament meeting. And Owen got up and announced, uh, without really saying what the accusations were, that that there had been allegations that had come against him, and that as a result, they had decided to remove him from the council. And um, I uh, I had a hard time, but you know, Owen was the leader, Owen was the prophet, and so I said, okay, you know, uh, you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll accept it. But it really really troubled me, and what troubled me was that after that, they started. You know, in some places they started doing test oaths. They started, um, they started, in essence, what they were asking was they were asking for you to accept the council's decision, but uh, they didn't want you to question it or uh, uh, in any sort of way because you were not a peer to the council. You know, and to me, uh, I, it, was, it presented an, uh, a contradiction that caused a lot of conflict in me, and I started questioning things. And, uh, this culminated in me and one of my good friends, Sean Anderson, eventually went to go talk to Joseph Thompson and uh, became convinced of his innocence. And from that point, we started to defend him. Once we defended him, Sean, myself, and anybody else who dared question the council on this found ourselves on the outs. And uh, this included my father-in-law. This included my father. This included, you know, a handful of other men. So one minute, I was a happy member. The next minute, I'm on the outs completely. 
So Okay, so you find yourself on the outside of a religious group again, and now are you excommunicated? What's the process? Well, you know what? There really wasn't so much of a process. They called a meeting with, with our family. They asked us some questions. There was no deliberation. We were just dismissed. And then my father got a phone call from Owen. And I have to say that, you know, I loved Owen Allred a lot. He was he was a good friend. And I know that this was really hard for him to to have to face this situation. Owen called my dad and said, so I guess you think you're right and you think I'm wrong. And my dad said, well, that's that's essentially that's essentially the sum of it. And my and then he says, well, he says, I want you to know, Ted, that I love you. And I always will, no matter where you go. And my dad said, well, I love you too, Owen. And then they hung up and my dad turned to me and he said, that was the sweetest excommunication that I've ever had. Which, I mean, not to make light of it, but it's kind of humorous that it wasn't his only excommunication in Mormonism. No. So talk to me about what it's like now that you're on the outs with this group again. How does, how does your wife take this? Well, I was very fortunate that uh, that my wife stood by me through through all of it, you know. And she didn't stand by me just because this was my opinion, you know. Uh, she met with a bunch of sisters and discussed and prayed over these things too. So it wasn't it wasn't as if you know I influenced her decision, but it was still hard because you know what she grew up around uh, a lot of those people. You know, it's sad to say that there seems to be a thing in Mormonism that when we cast somebody out. We ostracize them. We pretend like we don't know them. We don't want to talk to them anymore. You know, and it, that seems to be prevalent, you know, from the church all the way down to these fundamentalist groups. And I know that it was hard for my wife to have all these people who used to be her friends, people she grew up with, not wanting to speak to her, not not wanting to associate with her anymore. Being excommunicated from the AUB was a, harder for me than the LDS church. You know, I think because the LDS church is so large. And so, you know, such a large organization, the AUB is smaller. It was a little more intimate. It was tough. It was hard, you know. Well, Moroni, this is why a lot of interesting dynamics are coming and interesting questions are coming up for me right now about this. So one of the things people ask me all the time is fundamentalism is so close to Mormonism. I had no idea. And I said, yeah, it is. But the one major difference is in the LDS church, we don't interact with our prophet all the time and you have the ability to. And so, like you said, that that brings about a relationship and the your prophet is literally cutting you off. But it, in a different aspect, I also think that it's really interesting because here now you've been cast out, if you will, of two religious organizations and you don't lose your faith. And yet a lot of people, when they're excommunicated from the LDS church, people that are excommunicated for sexual sins, if you will, they don't lose their faith, but for issues like this disagreement, they usually lose their faith. Why didn't you lose your faith? I, you know, I think a lot of it had had to do with my perception of what I was doing was standing on the principles of my faith. And, uh, you know, specifically uh, with Joe Thompson, he should have been afforded a fair trial, a priesthood court, if you would. There were other political things that were going on in the AUB, you know, like the Virginia Hill case that, you know, I'm really not going to get into, but, uh, you know, people that want to research them can go look into them. But there was a political expediency to getting rid of this man. And to me, it just didn't seem right. So it goes back to what we were saying earlier, that that uh, I, had a, I had an answer 
to join this organization, but I knew that it was flawed at the same time. And I kind of knew from the, that I was going to have to leave one day, you know, and uh, it just happened a lot quicker. You know, I just, when, when I, you know, I kind of envisioned it as something that was going to happen years down the road. I, I do want to point out uh, one thing that was happening to me personally at the time. I was interested in a girl at the time, somebody that would potentially come into our family. And once I took the stand I did, I was on an opposite side from her. And so it, it didn't work out partially because of that. Can I, yeah. can I ask you some personal questions about that for a minute? Sure. So one of the personal curiosities I've had growing up as an LDS girl is I point out to LDS men that they're probably not even aware that they have from birth this ability to envision themselves with multiple sexual partners throughout their life or in the at least in the eternities. Whereas LDS women, we are supposed to be the one guy forever and that's it. And so I want to kind of like dive into that, that thinking and that dynamic because I think it does create some interesting cultural differences. So what is it like to, I don't even know if you can answer this, but being a married man committed to a woman and that commitment is holy and seen of, you know, with the stamp of approval by God, but also know that your heart and mind are free to look elsewhere, whereas your wife is not. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, dive into it is, is a pretty apt dis- description because, you know, without really thinking too much about it, I barreled into this, you know, and it's like now as, as a man, you know, in my late 40s, looking back at all this, you know, I think I probably would have been a little more sensitive to what she was going through. Martha and I made an agreement before we were ever married that we would live plural marriage someday. In fact, she kind of wanted that to happen. And um, about a year after we were married, there was a girl who was new to our congregation there in the AUB. She had just moved there from England, which they did have some English saints from the AUB at that time. And uh, I didn't really know her. I had been introduced to her, but uh, I started having dreams that I was either courting or married to her. I didn't think about it much, but then I started having these dreams almost every night. Almost every night I was dreaming that, that uh, I was courting or, or uh, married to her. And so finally I couldn't ignore it. And one morning when I woke up, I shared my dream with my wife, Martha. I felt horrible. She she turned and put her head down onto the pillow and started to cry, and she was inconsolable for a while. And, you know, I felt guilty and horrible about even bringing up the subject. I felt terrible. But the next Sunday, my wife went over to this girl and started talking to her, started sitting with her and visiting with her, and the next step was I went to Owen Allred and asked about her. Then I went to her father. The girl wasn't ready to court or really enter my family, but we became friends. You know, you know the reason that's significant is it, it was it was my first instance of trying to court somebody outside of my wife. You know, it was, so it was kind of a first for me. You know. Yeah, I think about this dynamic a lot. I think about what it would be like to be a woman sort of in the congregation thinking that, you know, really, you know, the social scripts that I'm used to in a Mormon ward are if a guy's married, you just, you know, you go babysit his kids. You don't, you don't think about that, but it's such a, it's such a different dynamic. But in a sense, I mean, 
I, it's not that unfamiliar to me, too. There are some parallels. So it was obviously hard for your wife, even though she grew up in it. And this is something I want to point out because, you know, you said that when she, when you guys got married, she sort of chose this. She wanted this. And this is hard for people to understand, but this is very, very authentic. And, of course, we can get into the discussion of informed consent. And if she had grown up in a different lifestyle, if this is what she would have wanted. But, I mean, I do have to say that the women that I know who are plural wives, this is what they believe is the right thing to do. This is the thing that they think is the higher law. It's an expression of their righteousness. And so when they say they want it, oftentimes it's them talking their husbands into it and things like that, even though it's difficult, even though it comes with tears. And I know that doesn't make sense to a lot of listeners out there. But that is that is the reality of how a lot of these women who've grown up in it, you know, they believe. I think it's similar to um, the only thing I can really think of, and this is kind of a dumb example, is I, you know, I was super in love with my boyfriend when we were in high school and he had to go on a mission and it was terrible and so painful for me to leave him. But I think he probably felt a lot of pressure from me to go because even though it was so hard and it's not what we really wanted, that's what we knew needed to happen. So I don't even know if that's a fair comparison, but that's the closest thing I can get to, to sort of talking about what we really want. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that would be a good description. And mainly, you know, after that, I I tried courting a few other women. You know, I didn't, I didn't, tried to court a whole lot, but there was a, at least a few other women that I tried to bring into the family, and it was unsuccessful. There was one that I had tried to tried to court, and I had only gone on like a, like two dates with her, okay, and it didn't work out. Even though it really didn't work out, you know, and even though we had only gone on two dates, I kind of invested myself emotionally in this person, you know. And uh, even when the dating stopped, I was telling myself in my mind, you know, well, I'll try again at some other point, you know. Then what happened is that uh, because I wasn't dating her, she, uh, one of my brothers approached me and asked if I wouldn't mind if they dated. And, of course, I felt a stab of jealousy, but I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so he started dating her, and it started working out. But in my heart, I was saying... Yeah, well, you know, I know her and I know him and it's eventually not going to work out. He's kind of gruff. She's kind of sensitive, you know, and then uh, it's not going to work out. And then she'll be available to date me. And as soon as I thought that, I caught myself and I said, wait a minute. What would I do if she broke up with him to go out with me? How would I feel? And I realized then I would feel terrible. I would feel horrible if that's what she decided to do. And then I said. I would rather her date him than date me, even though it's hard for me. And it's kind of funny. Uh, the minute I thought that, any feeling that I had had for her was gone in an instant. And I realized that this was kind of a trial that God was putting me through so that I would know a little bit, uh, a little bit better what Martha was feeling when I was dating somebody. After that, it was kind of like an aha experience uh, for me. I told Martha... I realize now that I was never ready for plural marriage until now. And I said, I feel ready for the first time. I said, there's somebody out there. And I said, it's like I'm in love with somebody, and I don't even know who. Three weeks later, my mother had, uh, we were living in Arizona at the time, and my mother went on a trip to uh, Utah, and she met a family there that was in the AUB, 
kind of on the outskirts of the AUB. My mother came back and said, I, I met this girl named Temple, and I uh, think she would be a perfect fit for your family. So I went and I told Martha, I said, this is her. I know it. This is her. This is the one we've been waiting for. That night, I wrote a letter to Temple. The next morning, I told my mom, I said, I wrote her a letter. And my mom says, are you crazy? You haven't even seen her. You haven't even met her. And I said, yeah, you're right. And she was like, don't you think you should wait to meet her? And I said, yeah, you're right. Well, uh, that night, Martha wrote her a letter. So I stuck it in an envelope, went to the post office box, and I, I kind of had this moment where I was getting ready to drop the envelope to this girl I had never seen, never even met. I'm getting ready to drop it into the P.O. box, you know, into the little slot. I let go, and it was like, well, it's too late, you know. So I sent this letter off to her. I included a letter... Uh, I included the letter from Martha, and I included a letter to her dad, you know, asking to get his permission to, to know Temple. Before I could even get a response, I had a, a chance to travel up to Utah, and we were just going to happen to go through the town where Temple lived. And so uh, my parents, who had previously met Temple's parents, decided to stop. I'm going to meet this girl that I wrote a letter to. She's already received it. I've never even seen what she looks like. I had one of my brothers with me, and... Uh, her brother answered the door, and uh, her brother had long hair. And for a, for a brief moment, my brother thought that this was Temple. And he was like, oh, poor Moroni, you know. <laughs> well, uh, then I met her, and, you know, she was she was attractive. She was cute, and we got along. We had, uh, we had a conversation, and then we went over to somebody else's house, and we were having a fireside. And I was really fidgety during the fireside because I had just met Temple, and I, I thought, I'm not here in Utah to go to a fireside. I'm here to meet a girl. And so uh, I left the fireside, and I went and I called her. And it was the strangest conversation. We had just met that day for the first time. But she laid out ground rules for a courtship. You know, this is what I expect. This is what I want. So we basically laid the groundworks for a courtship right then. And we had a long-distance di relationship. We communicated through email, through phone calls. The next time I saw her, I... Uh, put a ring on her finger. Two months after that, we were married, you know, and I was all of a sudden in plural marriage. And So wait, though, wait, wait, I want to back up just, just a bit. So when you start dating women and then eventually, you know, you go on this trip to meet Temple, does this alter and shift your dynamic with Martha? Absolutely. In fact, she just walked in and she's sitting over here nodding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, it did, you know, um, Martha and I, uh, I, we had already been together for seven years by the time we met Temple. We knew each other intimately well, but I saw a side of Martha that, that I didn't know existed. Um, when uh, Temple came out to greet us, I greeted Temple with a big hug. It was like two in the morning. We had just got to Utah at like at two in the morning. So Temple put out a couple of mattresses on the floor for Martha, the kids, and I, and Martha was very jealous. I kept asking her, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and she said, I saw you kiss her. And I said, you know, uh, our hug was actually the most chaste of hugs. Yet in Martha's mind, she saw that, that I had um, kissed Temple. She was uh, inconsolable. I'd never seen her inconsolable before, but nothing I could say or do, it kind of took me aback. And I have to point out that, you know, even though I had been exposed to plural marriage, I really didn't have a mentor at this point. You know, there was nobody in our community in Arizona at that point who was living plural marriage. My father wasn't. My father-in-law had been in plural marriage like almost a decade before, but it hadn't worked out. 
So I didn't have anyone to turn to. I didn't have really anyone to talk to, you know. And she didn't she didn't either other than her experiences growing up. I don't know if she wants since she's in the room if she wants to speak to this, but I I know that it would be a little bit different. I often think of, you know, Joseph Smith's early wives when they're first figuring out this principle, right? And it's super messy and there's all this drama going on. But she Martha would have at least had the benefit of growing up in a community seeing this dynamic as the norm, right? And yet it's still difficult for her. I I wonder what she thought when she first had to know she has to go sleep on this mattress of a woman who's going to be welcomed into her family. Yeah, that uh, I would ask her, but she's already gone. <laughs> I think she got hints that you might want to talk to her and she fled. <laughs> next time, next time. Yeah. But, so uh, so you so tell me about the ceremony, the sealing ceremony and then and let's talk about your first year. Okay. So anyway, you know, we had this courtship. and I traveled to Utah. I proposed to her. And then she came back with us for two weeks and stayed with us. And the reason I wanted to do that is that, you know, it's really easy when somebody is long distance and you only see them every now and then to put on a false face of who you are and what your family is. And I wanted her to spend a little bit of time with the family before she committed to uh, see what she was getting into. And so uh, she traveled to uh, Arizona and stayed with us for about two weeks. And then she returned home to Utah. So then we started making arrangements for a wedding. And at this point, we didn't have any of the facilities that the AUB had had. We had to do like a makeshift endowment ceremony. We went to somebody's house and redid their living room and some of their rooms into, into like a makeshift endowment house, you know hung sheets on the walls and everything like that. And uh, we fulfilled what is termed the law of Sarah, you know, or Martha fulfilled that, that uh, during the ceremony, before the sealing ceremony, Martha actually takes Temple's hand and places it in mine as, uh, as a uh, symbol that she is giving Temple to me as a wife. And then uh, while the sealing ceremony takes place, Martha places her hand over mine. After that, we loaded up as much of Temple's belongings as we could on top of uh, our minivan. And we made the trek to Arizona. And it was kind of funny. You know, all of her belongings were strapped to the top of my car. And then uh, we got some really bad rains on the way. And uh, when we got there, we were unloading sopping wet boxes. Everything that she owned was wet and had to be dried out. After that, we began life as a, as a married couple, or I guess you could say married trio, I don't know, you know, <laughs> but it was a, you know, it was, it was an adjustment for all of us, you know, we, uh, what are some of the biggest, uh, what would you say are the most typical adjustments that, you know, plural families experience during this transition? Well, I think a lot of it was, uh, how do we present Temple to the public? I was working a state job at the time. I worked, uh, I worked for, uh, uh, for the state of Arizona for one of their agencies as a welfare caseworker. And I, uh, I tried to hide Temple, hide the fact that she was a wife. And, you know, I, I look back at them and, you know, one of the things that was really hard for Temple to not have equal status 
as a first wife, you know, as Martha had. As, uh, Martha was my legal wife. We had a marriage license. I presented her in public as my wife. And, you know, I look back at it now and, you know, eventually we came out of the proverbial closet. You know, people found out who we were. And then I started, present, you know, presenting Temple as who she was. I wish that that had happened a lot sooner because for the first few years, you know, Temple was, as she used to put it, my best kept secret. You know, we introduced her as a family friend. And uh, I look back at that, and for her sake, I regret that, you know. You know, we should have been more open with people. Who, we, But, you know, I was afraid of losing my job. I was afraid of, you know, a lot of other repercussions that could happen. As a husband, I can speak, I really can't speak for them on what was hard for them. But for me, myself, you know, what was hard was, that uh, one wife would take me aside and say something like, you know, you always pay attention to her and you never pay attention to me. And, you know, so I'm upset with you. Then I would go into the other room and the other wife would say the same thing. She would say, you always pay attention to her and not to me. And so I'm upset with you. And uh, I would, my mind would just be boggled because which one was I ignoring? You know, in their mind, you can't tell them that they're wrong because in their mind, they're right. You know, it's real to them. It took me a long time to kind of catch on on how to deal with that. And uh, what I learned eventually was that, that uh, when a wife expresses upset to you, it's because she has an insecurity. And as long as you meet the insecurity, you know, you're doing a good job as a husband. But if you, if you tell her, no, that's silly, you know, why, do you, why are you feeling that way? It's ridiculous, you know, then you've invalidated her. And she's going to be upset. Well, the first year, I had a hard time adjusting to that. You know, I could, uh, I would drive home from work at night and just park in the driveway, and I could feel the tension. It was palpable coming out of the house, you know. And I would think, oh, gosh, I wish I could go back to work. <laughs> and I wrote to a friend of mine who, uh, I emailed a friend of mine who was a polygamist up in Utah, and uh, one of the only people that I could go to for advice, and I told them, I said, what do I do? You know, they're always mad at me. You know, one of them's always mad at me. And, you know, how do you handle it? And he just wrote me back this smug reply, this most smug reply. And he said, he said, well, I'm happy for you. He says, uh, be glad they're mad at you and not at each other. That's another area that I have to give uh, both Martha and Temple is that they rarely ever fought. I mean, yet they did have their moments, but for the most part, they got along really good with each other. So I want to find out this question, which is, now you've left the AUB, you're sort of independent, and I want to know if you're with any other group, because I do I do wonder how the dynamics of being in a group affects your support system, your infrastructure, and sort of how these conflicts in your own personal life are being supported in your church group. You know, when... As an LDS person living in a monogamous relationship, when you have problems, you can go to your bishop or in Relief Society or priesthood. There are many, many lessons focused on family and how to treat your spouse and conflict and finances. So talk to me about your support system and how, you know, your religious group at the time. Okay. Well, uh, after we had been separated from the AUB, there was, you know, there was maybe about a dozen families or so that found herself on the outs. And uh, my dad started pushing for people to move to Arizona, which eventually a lot of people did. But at first, you know, it was just me and my dad, 
Martha, my mother, and some of my other siblings and their kids. But uh, my dad, uh, you have to understand, he was uh, very much an, you know, a type A personality. He was a mover and a shaker. Everywhere he went, he was like that. You know, whether it was in business, he had been instrumental in, in organizing several Spanish-speaking branches during his tenure in the, in the LDS church. And anyway, my, my dad had been instrumental in organizing many Spanish-speaking um, branches, there were there were several of the men and their families that that after they got excommunicated from the AUB, their only concern was how to get back. You know, uh, what do I need to do to get back in the good graces? And and that's what they were focused on for several years. My dad instantly realized we would not be welcome anymore, and so he started trying to move forward. He organized uh, meetings in our living rooms. He started looking for property where we could live the United Order. Anyway, uh, we uh, wound up as a family finding uh, property in eastern Arizona, kind of over by Snowflake, a little town called Concho. And we purchased property, and we all moved out there, and we all started to live a family united order. Eventually, several other families moved out to the area. So our cottage meetings that were held in living rooms uh, soon became larger. We built a chapel, you know, and uh, eventually we had several families uh, that were living out here. You know, as far as having structure, no, it was more familial, you know, even when there were extra families here. So, so there really, there really wasn't much of a support. I mean, we did have like a form of a relief society for the sisters. We uh, did eventually organize like a youth organization where we took uh, some of the young people on campouts and and that sort of thing but it, it was very loosely organized as compared to the AUB or the LDS church this united order that you're talking about this again this reminds me of the stories of the early united order in the 1860s people have been living plural marriage for about as long as you had and then they decide to live a united order and it doesn't work out in the same sort of way do you feel like you learned valuable lessons from that? And, and I can only imagine that changing your family dynamic so radically once, that maybe you were more resilient to changing your family dynamic radically again. But I want to talk more about what that was like, living the United Order. Yeah. You know, it, it, it had its good experiences and it had its bad experiences. You know, I, I've often told people who have asked about our experience of, you know, what did you learn and living united order was i mainly learned how not to live united order than i did how to live it (laughs) the way we used to do it was very simple you know uh, and and possibly incorrect doctrinally we used to just pool all of our income together into one pot and then try to pay as many bills as we could with that what we learned was that you know there were some families that always every week had greater greater needs than the other family to the point that if you let them, they would take everything in the pot, you know. And then uh, there was families that I, I kind of fell more on this end, that uh, I'm a very generous person, point that I would bite back the needs of my family to try to satisfy the needs of another family. And, you know, whereas that sounds noble, it's really not, because I was ignoring the needs of my family a lot and, and by not speaking up. That's such a good point and something I didn't consider because I have that issue too. If you're an empath or a people pleaser and you have bad boundaries, I found myself struggling with that too. And that's that's a perfect answer to my question because it's something I wouldn't have considered. What other do you have other lessons you learned? 
Yeah, you know, like in United Order, the uh, concept of personal property needs to needs to be respected. You know, for instance, Temple, when I married her, she was an animal lover. She came into the family with goats that she brought with her, and she had a, a pet llama. You know, and I used to joke around. You know, people used to say, "Well, what do you do with a llama?" Well, I'd say, "What does a llama do?" I, and they would say, "I don't know." And I'd say, "It eats." <laughs> you know, because we were paying out for hay, hay. The goats were producing milk or whatever. You know, but the the llama really wasn't. And uh, the thing is, is that there got to be other people who started trying to criticize Temple for owning the llama and for the expense of owning the llama. And I wound up having to put my foot down. This llama belongs to Temple. It came with her when she joined this family, when she joined this United Order. And there's nobody here who has the right to tell her that she can't have it. And I had to, I had to put my foot down a lot, you know, because people would criticize her for the additional expense. And, and that's one thing that, I, that, you know, people have to have private property, even if it's United Order. And you have to have something that's yours and that nobody can tell you that you can't have. So. I love that in this story, this story, your story includes punk rock, plural marriage, and a llama. This is great. <laughs> so, um, okay, so eventually, and you blog about this, and so I'm going to point people to your blog if they want to know about this, but your relationship with Temple doesn't work out. And we're not going to talk a lot about this here to be respectful to her and her feelings. And, of course, I would love any of these women to come talk. You know, it's very hard for me to get... Uh, practicing plural women to talk about their experiences, I think, because the press can be so brutal. Do you want to talk about some of the conflicts you've had with the press and and with your father and, and telling your story and all of that really quick? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind discussing uh, some of that. I, I even don't mind discussing some of... Uh, some of my separation with uh, with Temple. Uh, Why don't you? Get... Yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about that. What you're comfortable with, and then we can point that's, people to your blog. Uh, I'll start with the press a little bit first. With uh, my dealings with the press, because that that kind of comes first. And she was still involved with the family at the at that point. What happened is that at a, at a certain point, like I, I mentioned, that nobody was living plural marriage at first. You know, except me. <laughs> Then we got to the point where where we had several families who were practicing plural marriage. My uh, oldest brother, and I don't want to get too much into his story of what happened with him, but uh, he went through a he went through a very highly publicized divorce. In fact, uh, his uh, wife used the help of the media and the anti polygamous organizations to uh, to assist in her divorce, which is ironic because. You know, even though I'm not going to talk about her, she's now a plural wife again in a different marriage. But she uh, got the press involved. My brother was working at his office, and he had me hired as his assistant. We were leaving his office, and then we had a journalist all of a sudden come up and shove a camera in our faces as we're trying to drive away. You know, asked my brother by name. And then he uh, the, the camera turned on me, and he said, Are you Moroni? And... Uh, I said, yeah, and then my brother kind of threw it in reverse and drove out of there. Well, so uh, I met my wives in town and shared with them this experience of this TV camera being shoved into my face, and we decided to go home, and on our dirt road, and we have like five miles of dirt road to our house, and on the dirt road, I saw a news van parked there, 
and the camera guy's out there and he's uh filming a bald eagle in a tree just like getting some stock footage or something and I don't know what I was doing. Uh, the, the journalist was a guy named Mike Walkis who works for Channel 3. He and I are actually friends now, but he's he's known for extensively covering polygamy issues. And so uh, I parked the car and I got out to go talk to him. I asked him, I said, you know, I want to know why my name got brought up in this story. You know, how did my name become a part of this? And so he said... Uh, so you're Moroni, right? And I said, yeah. And he says, uh, are you part of such and such website? And uh, I said, I kind of laughed. And I said, yeah. I had a friend who was a Christian polygamist, a friend online, who had uh, back then, we're talking like this is 2006, he had uh, created a database of Christian ministers who believe in polygamy. And I, I, uh, when he formed this database, I said, what the heck? And so I added my name to it. Well, the website had only been active for maybe a year, and then it went into it fell into into you know nobody was using it anymore. Well, he says, uh, yeah, this website is known to peddle porn, specifically child porn. And I said, what? And uh, it turns out that because it wasn't being used, that it had been spammed. But the anti-polygamists had latched onto this, saying that I was attached to this website that had child porn, and I told. I told Mike Watkins, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. So that was the end of it. He didn't make that a story because it wasn't a story. But then he wanted to ask about my brother. And so he turned the camera on to me and started asking me questions. And I said, whoa, you know, you know, I, I answered his question. But the minute the camera turned on me, I, it's like I lost my eloquence. I started like muttering this reply that to me didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so that night, I went and I emailed the reporter, Mike, and he did cover the news story, but then after that, he turned my letter into a news story. He said, and now I would like to share on our website this story of, uh, you know, this letter written by Moroni Jessup, an eloquent uh, defense of plural marriage, you know. And so they had it linked to their website. Well, then, right around this same time, in 2008, this uh, journalist blindsided us, and it got me concerned. And right around this same time, this is when the FLDS raid took place in Texas, you know, at the, uh, the YFC ranch. And uh, to tell you the truth, the combination of being blindsided by the media and this raid going on in Texas uh, at the same time scared the heck out of me. You know, I started to seriously wonder what was going to happen to my family. I mean, that's a very real fear that that, that uh, there are people out there that because we were a plural family, that they would come in simply because we're a plural family and seek to break us up, seek to take the children away. Uh, that scared the hell out of me. Also, there was uh, this lie that, you know, I saw that some of these anti-polygamists were willing to lie, you know, about me, even though they didn't know me, associating my name with uh, child porn, that was so far-fetched for me. I realized that these people were willing to say anything that they that they could to discredit, to harm, to, to destroy our family. So I realized that I had to speak up for myself. So uh, uh, a few months previous, I had been approached by a producer, and uh, I had turned them away. And so I contacted this producer again, and I said, what do I do? How do I handle being approached by the media? And so they, we started to negotiate, and they came out, and they did uh, they did like a two-day interview with my family, 
that turned into two programs. One of them was aired in the UK. It was with a presenter uh, named Don Porter. They later aired that one on TLC. And then the other one turned into a, a much kinder History Channel program. And then I had... Uh, I had an opportunity to do a couple of radio interviews on public radio, one on NPR. And then uh, we had a crew from France come out and spend a couple of days with us also. They did another segment on us. So uh, for a while, I was involved in the media. I started the blog because TV program that we did with TLC was kind of a hatchet job. And I could kind of see that right from the get-go that it was going to do that. And so I started blogging about what was really going on while they were filming us. <laughs> and uh, that blog just sort of grew into a general polygamy blog from there. You know, will, you, um, will you give us the URL just so those who listen on iTunes or on other apps can find it? Sure. It's, uh, the name of the blog is Moroni's Polygamy, uh, Moroni's Family Polygamy Experience, and it's moroni-family.blogspot.com. Okay, and we will link to that, so you can go to yourpolygamy.com and click on the link and find it. So let's move into the separation of you and Temple. One thing, you know, when I was reading your blog post about this particular incident or process, I, I guess is a better label for it, you use a term, release from the ceiling, and it triggered a memory for me. You were saying in Mormon vernacular, we use the word release, but I actually hadn't heard that word for a long time. And then I remembered, oh, it wasn't completely foreign to me. But my generation kind of grows up with this idea of a temple divorce. And we actually use like the secular word divorce. So talk to me about just, you know, you the, the release from the ceiling and all of that too, when you're talking about the story. Well, that's interesting that the, the vernacular has changed uh, to temple divorce, because I remember growing up in the LDS church that we always used to refer to it as a release back then, you know, uh, so, which so is why I think it's vaguely familiar to me. So yeah. I, that, that's, that's, this is why I love talking about Mormon fundamentalism because we really do learn about ourselves looking at our different groups of Mormonism, you know, it's fascinating. So sorry for that sidetrack, but keep going. Looking back as to why the marriage, failed, um, it's something that I can't really explain how it happens. But then on the other hand, I, you know, I've been very self-analytical and gone back and identified a whole bunch of things that, that happened. And uh, it, uh, it kind of all started, I think I had left state service at, at some point, and I'd gone to work with some of my other fundamentalist friends doing construction. I had gone from being a social worker to a construction worker. And I found that that uh, income was really sporadic. I was getting laid off all the times as projects ended and projects started. And so there would be these long stretches where I wouldn't have work, and uh, that was kind of hard on the family. Temple wound up having to get a job and go out to help support the family. And then the dynamic of the family changed because for for uh, 10 years, we had all lived under under one house, one, one roof. We had lived in one house. But the family started growing to the size, and the kids were starting to be, become teenagers, that we needed something other than one house. And so uh, the opportunity came for us to split up the family into two different houses. Now, granted, these houses were maybe 100 yards apart, but it was still in two different houses. And Temple came to me before it happened, and she begged me not to do it. She says, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to the family if you split us up. When we split up the family, 
it changed our dynamic to the point that we all struggled and we had we had to readjust just like I did the first year of plural marriage. I had to try to adjust to uh, us being apart. What would be the biggest dynamic? The demands on your time or not having the children together? What's not the dynamic? Together, not eating together. You know, uh, it just seemed like we were there was a, like a distance. And I'm not saying that this is the I'm not saying that this was the cause of the separation, uh, but this was, you know, there was a, just a different shift in, in the way we had done things for the previous decade. And I went away on, um, I went away on a trip. I got a job uh, where I was out of the house for five months. When I came back, you know, temples and my relationship, something had, something had shifted, something had changed. It wasn't the same anymore. And I, I can't really attest to what it was. All I can attest to is that uh, is that that you know how I responded and and uh, at the same point that this was going on, I was developing health issues. I had developed a diabetic foot ulcer. I had gone into surgery, and uh, the infection from the from the ulcer had gone into my bone, and they were trying to keep me from losing my foot. And I was at home. I was at home on on home health. I had nurses coming to my house, changing my IVs, and then when the nurses couldn't come to the house. Temple was rushing home from work to change my IV on her lunch, going back to work, coming back and changing the IV. And, you know, me, it was like, I felt like I was in prison. You know, I was, I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't go anywhere. I was on an IV. I was on uh, an antibiotic that they called vancomycin that I didn't realize until later, you know, is toxic and is mood altering. You know, you know, I was, not a very pleasant person to be around probably during this whole time period. It was a very dark time period. But the start of that just caused Temple and I to grow apart further and further and further. At this point, you know, Martha doesn't really know what's going on. Temple doesn't really even know what's going on. You know, I ask her, I'm like, what's happening? And she says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. She was also tired of living out on, on you know, off grid on our ranch the way we do with no electricity, mud, you get, you know, like I mentioned earlier that we're, we're stuck because of the snow right now. You know, it's, it's not the same as living in town. And she started looking for a way to move herself and the children out uh, into town, you know, and I'd ask her, well, am I going to move with you? And she'd say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and uh, Martha had suggested that we take this trip to kind of try to save our marriage. And so I booked, I booked a couple of tickets for Temple and I on our anniversary to New York City. And, you know, I found a hotel, you know, paid for the hotel, got everything ready. And she had taken a trip uh, for a few weeks to visit her family that lived out of state. And uh, she called me while she was on the trip to tell me that she had found a house in town. And I asked her, I said, uh, when she, I just asked her on, on a whim, I said, am, am I moving Am I going to be moving with you to this new house? And uh, she said, you know, I didn't really want to talk about this on the phone, but no, I need a little, I need a little space. I need a little time by myself for a while. And I said, okay. And when she got back, her friends came over and helped her move out, uh, move out of the house. And, you know, Martha was, Martha was crying as Temple was leaving. And it was just a hard time for all of us. You know, it was hard for me to understand what was going on, you know, uh, especially because, you know, for years, Temple and I had had such a great relationship, and I was either dumb and didn't see it, because Temple told me that it, uh, this was a long time in the coming. You know, we I helped her move out, and then uh, 
I had these tickets to New York City, and I said, you know, I said, uh, you know, are we still going on this trip? And she said, well, do you want to? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, okay, well, then let's go. Let's go on this trip. And so so we went on this trip, and, you know, I had had a friend tell me, you know, uh, you know, try to enjoy yourselves. Don't even talk about your relationship while you're there. Just try to have a good time and just make it about that. And so that's what I tried. Uh, we met some friends. I had uh, a friend that was... Uh, of mine with his girlfriend that they met us and you know we hung out in New York together they were there from Philadelphia and uh, they could kind of tell that there was something wrong but they didn't really know what was going on and I had made a, a kind of like an off-handed joke with Temple. Temple was the only one working. I had just been recovering from a foot ulcer so I wasn't working at all. I made a joke. We went to this Indian restaurant and I made a joke when she handed over her debit card about her being the cash cow of the family I said it in a joke, but it got her angry, you know, and she made kind of like a comment. Well, I, well, I took care of that, didn't I? <laughs> we got back to the hotel room and I said, gosh, you know, that was kind of a mean thing to say. And she said, well, you know, and she proceeded to unload on me then. She, uh, she brought up all of her complaints about stuff that I'd done in her marriage that was uh, legitimate. And one of them was, you know, you pay so much attention to me lately and you haven't been paying attention to Martha, how is that supposed to make me feel when you're paying attention to Mar to me and not to Martha? I said, well, you know what? I said, deep down, I kind of knew, deep down, I kind of knew that you were going to leave, you know, and I was trying to do everything I could to prevent you from doing that, you know? So wait, to clarify, she was saying that more attention to her was an indicator that there was a problem? I'm sorry, repeat that. So in from her perspective, it's sort of the opposite of a different relationship when, which means you giving her more attention is an indicator that there's a problem between you and Temple. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she, she, she didn't think, she didn't think that I was being, uh, being equitable. And this is one of the things I've observed in my own plural marriage, as well as others that, that, uh, you know, a lot of times a wife will put a husband on a test to see if he's going to be fair. You know, especially in plural marriage, are you going to be fair? You know, and obviously I wasn't passing the test because, you know, for for eight months previous, Temple and I had been struggling in our relationship. And because of we were struggling, I gave I gave her the lion's share of my attention, which caused her in turn not to respect me as much. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think I think I can understand it. So she couldn't trust that if, you know, that it was sincerely based, it was more in an effort to make up for things. And it showed that you weren't equitable in her mind. Right. Yeah, no, that uh, makes sense. Uh, at this point, I told her, I said, uh, well, I have a blessing to give you. And she said, uh, well, what? Are you going to bless me so that I have feelings for you again? And I said, actually, I don't know what I'm going to say when I give you a blessing. I know that I just need to give you a blessing. And so, so she sat down on the hotel bed and, um, as soon as I put my hands on her head, I knew what I had to do. And uh, I released her from her covenant to me. You know, I gave her a release, basically. You know, even though I didn't really know how to give a release or what a release was, but that's what I did. I put my hands on her head, and I, I basically told her that, that she was released from her covenant to me. You know, because I knew that's what she wanted, you know. And um, she started, uh, she broke down and started crying. You know, she just started sobbing, you know, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, you know. And I uh, I put my arm around her and I said, uh, I said, uh, no, you're not. 
you know. I had been doing a lot of fasting and a lot of praying before this trip to New York, and my fasting and prayers revolved around, you know, begging God to make things better between Temple and I. And I had two, uh, well, I had several spiritual experiences, but they were not, they were never what I expected. For instance, you know, one of the answers that I received was that a man is responsible for a marriage, even when, even when the wife, it's the wife that wants to leave, it's the man that has to bear the responsibility of that. And then uh, uh, on two occasions, I heard a voice, I heard an audible voice, believe in temple. Once I was walking in the woods praying, and I heard the voice say, believe in temple. Once I was waking up from a nap thinking about temple, and I heard the words, believe in temple. Well, I thought that that meant that I needed to believe that she was going to do what was right or whatever and come back to me. But then uh, you have to kind of understand that before I left on this five-month trip, you know, uh, I had been I had been going through a very time spiritually. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, not everybody all the time is at a super high spiritual level. We all go through things where we have like a roller coaster where we're spiritual, then we're not spiritual. Well, right before I had gone through this time period where I was discouraged with with where our community was, where I was economically, where I was, you know, I, I actually got to a point in my life where I was doubting God. Temple brought that up and she says, I knew that you were going through this. And uh, she says, I knew, she says, I've been thinking for a while about that I needed to leave. And she said, and I knew that, I knew that, I knew that uh, if I didn't leave, you were going to stay stagnant and you weren't going to progress the way God intended you to. But if I went ahead and I, if I left you the way I was feeling like I needed to, it was going to provide you growth so that you could become the man that God wants you to be. While she was telling me this, I remembered the words that I had heard believe in temple. And I knew, I knew somehow that those words that I had heard applied to what she was telling me right then and there in that moment. And that her leaving was supposed to be a test for me, you know. Coming to that understanding kind of made things easier. And uh, and it was kind of weird, you know. We The rest of our trip, you know, we were laughing and holding hands and having a good time. And, and we totally enjoyed the rest of our time in New York. And my friends that were there with us who knew that we had just split up were baffled at how we were acting. And I told them, I said, well, isn't this the way that all marriages that end should end? You know, with the celebration, you celebrate your time together. I said, it's kind of like a reverse honeymoon, you know. So uh, we drove back and, you know, she dropped me off at home and gave her a hug and said goodbye. And she went and started her life and I continued with mine. And I'm not going to say that it was always easy because it's not. I mean, anytime that you have a relationship that ends, it, it you know, it, it's hard. But having that understanding made it a lot easier. And Temple and I never went to court. We made an agreement uh, with each other on on child custody, and uh, we've uh, still remained friends. She's remarried now. She and her husband and Martha and I go out on double dates. I think he's a really good guy. My kids love him, both sides of the family. And, and you know, I really have to give Temple a lot of the credit on this because she, I can't, I can't claim the success for how amicable our split has been. I really have to give it to her because she could have made it really rough on me, but she didn't. She desires to have those kids in my life. And not only that, she's, you ask her how many kids she has, she has, she has 11. She'll tell it, she'll tell anyone that. 
that uh, the kids that Martha has, she claims is hers too. You know, in that sense, I'm really, really blessed. Yeah, so I appreciate you talking about that. And I'm going to link to the blog post where you show pictures from your reverse honeymoon, as you call it, in New York. How did how did going from being plural back to being monogamous, how did that affect your relationship with Martha? Well, uh, Martha, well, you know, it was tough on Martha. You know, it was tough on Martha, too, to have Temple out of her life. And, uh, you know, Martha shed a lot of tears over it, too. One of the first things that happened afterwards is Martha took me aside and she says, are you going to let this stop you from living God's law? Are you going to let this stop you from entering plural marriage again? Honestly, going into plural marriage again, it's been me that's drugged my feet. You know, uh, I think that Martha and I both agreed that we liked it better when we were in a plural marriage situation, but I'm reluctant to make myself that vulnerable again. You know, it's a lot of work. Plural marriage is not for the faint-hearted. It's it's really difficult. Well, I want to uh, I want to ask you a hard question, and you you know, if you're not comfortable, we can take this out. But, uh, you told me, and I think you mentioned this online too, that you did a lot of your dating online. You were polygamous dating online, and now that I uh, my year of polygamy email gets spammed with polygamous dating sites, it's very it's way more common than you think. But I got to be honest, when I heard you first say that, there was something in me that it just felt like creepy or gross or groomy to, to know that there are men out there trolling for polygamy. And I know that that's kind of a bias. So walk me through that. Well, you know what? I, I actually, you know, if you'll read uh, in my blog, I kind of talk against that. Uh, right uh, from the get-go, you know, when the, you know, when the Internet first started coming out, I thought, hey, this is a great forum for meeting wives, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, Well, uh, and joined... let me be clear. My issue is not necessarily that there are polygamists that want other people. It's sort of the dishonesty presenting. You know, we've heard stories. I, I think the famous one is Christopher Namelka used to do this, go to singles ward, present himself as a single man. And then once the woman was attached, be like, psych, I've got another wife at home. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm really against that sort of thing. But see, I've, I've been there, you know, like, uh, you know, like we're talking like, you know, 2000, 2001, I signed up for date.com. And I put myself on there as a polygamist. Well, guess how many hits I got? I got none. So then I just put myself as just married. And then I got none, zero hits. So I put myself as single. And then I got a ton of hits. You know, a lot of them were like, girls from Russia, but, you know, that's beside the point. <laughs> and uh, so I started writing a couple of girls, and there was one girl that I lied to her, and I told her that I was single. And then when I sprung the news on her, she was like, oh, okay, you know, I don't want polygamy for myself, but she sent my wife uh, chocolates. <laughs> then there was another girl that I lied to her, and then when I finally came out in the open, she was heartbroken because she really believed in her heart that she was going to marry me or something. And then when she found out about the polygamy, she was heartbroken. And I felt really horrible for doing that to her. So I made myself a promise from that time forward that I would always be myself, um, no matter um, no matter what. I would always be truthful. And uh, I stopped using the Internet, you know, 14 years ago as a, as a means of trying to find wives. Uh, the Internet is a better tool for networking with people that believe the same as me, you know, for, for doing missionary work. And so that's, that's what I use it for. You know, I don't, I don't agree with people trolling for wives like that. You know, to me, it's kind of disgusting. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is not unique to Mormon fundamentalists, of course. All my single friends have stories of, you know, people that are dishonest about their relationship status when they're on Bumble or Twitter or Tumble. What are they? Bumble? What's the other one? What's the big one? I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. This shows you how, how out of the game I am. Okay. So, yeah, thanks for answering that. I appreciate that. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask a little bit more about what it's like to be an independent, and then we'll talk about where you're at now. Okay. All right. Well, basically, as an independent, I don't really belong to any organized group. Although we have a, a group of like-minded people here we meet for Sunday school, and that's about it. We belong to more what you would call patriarchal order. And, you know, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, people who know me know that I'm a little more progressive. I hate words like fundamentalist, even though I am one. I hate words like patriarchal, even though, you know, what other words do you, do you use? I, I, I guess you could use the word familial, but... Uh, but uh, Patriarchal in the sense that, uh, that the parents stand at the head of each family rather than a prophet or, or um, you know, some tight, tightly organized apostolic organization. And uh, one thing that's kind of cool that I've been seeing in about the last three or four years that hasn't happened before is that uh, a lot of communities are coming together, you know, like maybe communities in other states uh, uh, you know, that don't have affiliations with each other, but they're coming together for socializing, for marrying, you know, because I think that a lot of us realize that, you know, we don't have the benefit of having a large group, but since we don't, who are our sons and daughters going to marry? You know, that's a concern. That's a concern of mine. And so the best solution to that for other small groups like ours is to have interaction with each other. And so, I've spent a lot of time in the last few years traveling uh, to other groups and making connections like this, and it's been very exciting to see this. Yeah, and and that's something that we do with Sunstone too. Is we're trying to integrate all the groups, not not for the social reasons that you're talking about, but I really do feel like there's healing and learning that can happen from all sides of the spectrum, and a lot of us come from the same, you know, family roots, and so I really do agree with this idea of integration and people talking more and getting to know each other. So right now you're independent, you're still faithful. Later on we said we might talk about harder doctrinal issues and how you make sense of those, but not today. But you're still a believer in God with this this diverse life and you still believe in the Book of Mormon and all of that? Yes, I do. I, I believe in the Book of Mormon. I believe in Mormonism. However, you know, at this point in my life, you know, and I think that everybody actually should do this, is that, uh, is that I don't think that any doctrine is so infallible that it can't be challenged or questioned, you know, and I've kind of approached that in my life now. Is this really a tenet of the gospel, or did Brigham Young or Joseph Smith or John Taylor just express their own personal opinion on this? So not only, you know, not only have I come to the conclusion that uh, men are fallible, but also doctrines can be fallible, uh, fallible too. And, and there's nothing wrong with questioning. There's nothing wrong with, you know, looking at a tenet and asking myself, you know, do I really believe that? Does this conform with other things that I believe? You know, it's a, it's a quest. It's a lifelong quest. And, uh, you know, one that's taken me from the LDS church. I never thought I would leave there. Took me through the AUB. Never thought I would leave there. And it's taken me down many diverse and different paths. 
uh, you know, the one thing that I consider myself as a truth seeker, and I want to know the truth of all things. So, Okay, well, this has been fascinating, and we'll probably have you back on again, just because your life is so, so interesting, and you have your foot in the door of so many different communities still. Yeah, next time we'll talk about punk rock, too. Yeah, and and music. Yeah, I definitely want to hear that. Um, so, is there anything you want to leave us with? Anything you wish that people would know about fundamentalists or polygamists? Well, I I, I think that uh, people need to understand that even though we don't belong to the corporate mainstream church, that we still consider ourselves Mormon. You know, there's a there's been a a tendency to say, oh, well, they're not Mormon, but uh, you know, I I I am. I I read read the same Book of Mormon that you do. I We sing the same hymns. Our cultures are more similar than they are different. I think that that's what I would like to say. Yeah, I think that's accurate, too. And, and that's something we're trying to do with the podcast, that Mormonism is far bigger than one group. So, And you've certainly <laughs> bounced around from different groups, so you know that better than anyone. Well, thank you so much again, Moroni. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. If you're enjoying the music on the podcast, it's from a local band in Salt Lake City made up of women, Lady Murasaki. Look them up at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.